1: Hi, my name is Nathan Hobson, and I'm a host for the New Books in East Asian Studies podcast, a member of the New Books Network. Today, I'm going to be talking to John Trephagan about his book, Cosmopolitan Rurality, Depopulation, and Entrepreneurial Ecosystems in 21st Century Japan. Cosmopolitan Rurality presents a series of deeply contextualized ethnographies of small business entrepreneurs in contemporary rural Japan. Trapagin focuses on Kanegasaki, a small town in northern Japan's Tohoku region, where he has been doing fieldwork for three decades. The protagonists of the ethnographies collected in the book are a diverse bunch, including the reluctant pharmacy owner, the samurai pizza chef, the sharp-witted woman priest. Their stories and sensibilities challenge conventional wisdom about small-town life in Japan and beyond. Traphagen specifically explores the effects of depopulation on rural communities and individuals and offers insight into the ecosystem in which these entrepreneurs operate and their motivations. A through line in the testimony collected in cosmopolitan morality is the importance of fulfillment, ikigai, and service to the community over profit and expansion. Another is that of interconnection through the movement of people and goods, not just ideas, with both Japan and the world writ large and the cosmopolitan morality which this engenders. All right, Dr. Trappigan, thank you so much for joining us here on the podcast. Um, so as you may know, uh, our traditional opening question is, um, how did you become interested in this particular topic? Um, and what brought you to this book
2: project? Well, thank you very much for having me here. I'm, I'm looking forward to our conversation and uh, please feel free to call me by my first name, John, throughout the conversation. Um, that's a, a kind of an interesting question. Um, I think it it really came, well, first of all, I've been traveling to the same part of Japan since the 1980s and, uh, have been interested in, in, you know, processes of social change that have been happening over that, that period of time. And, and one of the things that I noticed, um, in the last few years, maybe 10 years or a little more is, um, I, I noticed people starting small businesses and, um, I, that probably seems normal, but it didn't seem normal to me. And the reason it didn't seem normal is because uh, this is a part of Japan where, well, well all of Japan, but a uh, part of Japan where, in particular, uh, they are experiencing significant depopulation. And so I got kind of curious about, well, why would someone move to a, a an area that's um, kind of outside the big cities and start a small business when their customers are declining in number. Uh, that that was really one of the things that, that captured my interest. The other thing that was interesting to me too was that I had noticed that uh, quite a few of the small business owners that I had, would run across were women, and so I was interested in, you know, since we have a lot of images of a you know patriarchal Japanese society, and sometimes that's. Um, seen as being intensified in, in um, more rural areas, I, I was curious. You know, what kinds of challenges do they face uh, in starting businesses in these areas? Where um, at least there's that image, uh, whether or not it was true, was one of my questions. And whether or not there was an image of um, whether there's an image of this kind of paternalistic, or, or I guess patriarchal is a better word, um, society, and, and would they run into roadblocks? That was part of my. Um, interest. And so those two things came together. And, and, and I started thinking about um, also the fact that I've been doing this anthropology and ethnography thing for 30 years in that part of Japan. And, and I wanted to write something that would kind of pull together a lot of what I've, I've experienced over the course of that time. So those are really the things that, that motivated me on the project.
1: Yeah, that's really, uh, I think it's very interesting. And, you know, I I think full disclosure for our audience, I actually also worked in a small business in that area that was founded by a a woman uh, in the late 90s, early 2000s, a translation company um, in in Morioka, actually. And uh, I I guess also in in the interest of full disclosure, uh, I should say that... uh, uh anyone anyone who quotes my my book on this on on that uh on that same area uh, automatically gets an invite so john that's why you're here <laughs> well, it's a great book i actually really enjoyed <laughs> oh, it you. i yeah. appreciate that, that really, really um but yeah great. so we we have these sort of really uh these interesting comments and i you know i spent uh not not as much time i think as you did but i think something around eight eight years in that area mm-hmm. um and I a uh, a lot of um, what you're writing about really, you, you know, rang true with uh, my experience, and so I wanted to. Uh, I'm really excited to get the chance to share that with our audience. Um, so I want to jump in to the book itself, um, and I want to take chapters one and two together. Um, I they're thematically distinct, but uh, what I think they're doing here really is they're setting up the scene for this sort of the series of rich ethnographies that follow in the remaining chapters. Um, So the first thing I want to do is just sort of think a little bit beyond the confines of the time and space of the research itself, Um, because you write that your book is about, uh, and I'm quoting you here, human creativity expressed in the form of entrepreneurialism. Um, You discuss entrepreneurial ecosystems, um, Mm -hmm. and that actually comes in chapter two, but I want to foreground it here at the opening for our listeners. Um, So... For the purposes of of the book, can you define entrepreneurialism for us and entrepreneurial ecosystems? Um, And can you tell us what it is that they can tell us about culture and society? Um, In particular, you you make the case uh, that your research suggests that the existing literature on entrepreneurial ecosystems fails to take into account and again, I'm quoting you here, um, the importance of cultural variables in shaping the structure and success in efforts to create an entrepreneurial ecosystem. So what's that all
2: about? Well, uh, it's, it's about jazz, actually. That's really what it's about. Um, and that's probably not the answer you thought you'd get on that one. Um, but let me um, give you a little sense of, so I define an entrepreneurial ecosystem as kind of a a set of interacting social, political, and economic um, players. Um, And by players, I I actually mean something along the lines of performers. Um, And they are, they they kind of are intertwined in a context um, in which they engage in innovative, which is a form of creative activity. And this kind of comes out of the way I see culture. Um, I... Uh, so I guess, uh, with more full disclosure, uh, I'm a jazz musician. Uh, I play jazz drums. Um, and I play jazz piano and I have for a really long time. I have a, uh, a, a trio of my own that, that plays in Austin and that has recorded and I play in other groups. And so, uh, jazz is a really pretty big part of my life. And one of the things that I kind of hit, at one point when I was trying to figure out what this, this culture thing is all about is that, um, well, maybe I should ask you, are you a musician? No. Okay. Then I'll, I'll explain this in a little more detail. Um, when, when jazz musicians get their music, it doesn't look like the music that, you know, like maybe if you learned piano as a kid or something like that, where you've got all the notes are laid out for you and the dynamics are laid out for you and you just follow it along and, and you, of course, you can you know be creative in how you choose to interpret it, but it's it's kind of all there for you. Um, in jazz, musicians get what's called a lead sheet, and a lead sheet is basically um, it gives you the tune, the melody, and it gives you the changes, which are the the chords that you need to play that change along the course of the melody as you play the melody. And so, what a, a great jazz musician does, like Thelonious Monk or or Miles Davis um is that they they take that structure so it's it, it, improvisation sometimes people have this idea that it's you know all oh, people go up on stage and play what they want that's not at all what's happening there's a very clear structure there but the structure has this kind of looseness to it that allows you to innovate and and to um that's what improvisation is it's a kind of innovation and it allows you to take you know a simple tune and then turn it into something else and what makes it really interesting is that what the, a great jazz musician can take the, the listener very far away from that tune and sometimes very far away from the changes. They do things to the changes that, um, you know, create different kinds of chord progressions. But the key to it all is that it all has to kind of come back to that basic structure on the lead sheet, because if it doesn't, it loses kind of logical coherence. And, and then it becomes difficult to make sense out of, and, and listeners don't, aren't too interested in it, and, and sometimes it's just not very good. And so um, what I see culture as being is very much like what's going on in, in say, a, um, a jazz trio. You've got a group of players, and they have, they have a form, they have a structure, um, and those are things like values and, and rules and those sorts of things that we, we share um, in a particular context but they're constantly improvising on those. They're innovating. They're coming up with new ideas. And and that's that's exactly what's going on on stage with a group of jazz musicians. In fact, they even have conversations where they go back and forth in a way that they improvise. So I started thinking about what entrepreneurs do. I thought, well, this is a very overt example of this. They, they take the things that are around them. They take the resources. They take, um, you know, raw materials. They take ideas. They take um, labor, and they combine those in new and novel ways that make sense. It has to make sense in the context because you have a market. And, and you know, if you don't pay attention to the market, um, then nobody's going to buy what you're trying to put together. And so, um, so the entrepreneur has to know the lead sheet, basically, basically, you know, she has to understand the market, has to understand what might work and what might not work. Uh, understand where the resources are that, that she can tap into and all those sorts of things. And then comes up with some sort of an innovative um, innovative thing that, that people want. So for me, uh, the, the sort of the root of all of this is, is human creativity. Entrepreneurialism is just a, a kind of you know, profound example of how creativity happens inside a particular type of context. And that's what I'm calling the entrepreneurial ecosystem that limits and shapes the capacity of individuals to innovate and come up with new ideas. Um, For me, um, it's that creativity that is most distinctive in humans. Um, I I think we're animals like other animals, and I think other animals are creative. Um, But I actually tend to shy away from the idea um, that what distinguishes us is our intelligence. I think there's a great deal of intelligence on our planet. Um, I think um, what distinguishes us is the way that we engage in creativity. Um, and again, other animals are creative as well, but I think humans are particularly creative. And I think that's really kind of one of the defining characteristics of us as a, as a kind of animal. And that comes through very clearly when you look at the entrepreneur in the, in the ecosystem that, that she's working or he's working and trying to develop some sort of an idea. And that, that's just one example. There are many other examples one could come up with. So I don't know if that, that captures what I'm thinking well.
1: Yeah, that was really helpful. And I think it, uh, it helped to flesh out some of the uh, things that you were talking about in the book, including the, the jazz reference, which I actually found to be um, quite compelling. Um, and I guess the, the idea that you have these, these lead sheets, these sort of, uh, you know, loose, but nevertheless, um, somewhat constrictive uh, structures within which the creative endeavors are happening um, is, you know, is very much behind uh, all of what you're doing in the ethnographic research which is the next thing that of course I want to talk about um, because your book is based on um, as uh, this extensive ethnographic research in uh, southern Iwate, one of the uh, prefectures of the Tohoku region which re- readers may be or actually the listeners may be familiar with um, and I think uh, mostly through the uh, tragic history of March 2011 and the triple disaster Fukuma, Fukushima Daiichi etc um, but that doesn't Fully define the region, of course, and I think you know one of the uh, sort of interesting things about the book is a totally different look at that region. So, um, what else should readers uh, know about uh, the southern Iwata area, um, specifically about the Kanegasaki uh, area of the, that that town uh, where you did your field work, in order to appreciate the book?
2: Well, I, I think you know some of the things that are very important to keep in mind is is that. Um, on the one hand, it's an area with, um, you know, significant agricultural production that, that certainly characterizes the region, uh, but there's a great deal more going on there. Um, and even kind of the, the, the nature of the agricultural production is not necessarily what people might have in their mind when they think of Japan. So Kanegasaki has a, a, a large dairy, um, industry. Um, there are quite a few dairy farms in the Western part of the town and, um, a couple of them are, are pretty large um and it has other things going on like um there you know if you um if you drive a prius c there's a pretty good chance it was built in Kanegasaki, because there's a huge toyota factory there um and they they used to make um some model of lexus and i think now, i think now they're making the prius c i know they were um and um, you know, there's a pharmaceutical company, and and there there's a semiconductor company, and so uh, this kind of gets into this this issue of of how we characterize what rural might mean in Japan. But this is a very dynamic place, um, and it's it's a place that um, has a population that is uh, very highly educated. Many people have traveled many places, you know, all over the world. Uh, and of course, they've brought ideas from other places back with them. Um, and yet at the same time, it's also a place that some in some ways prides itself on on its so-called traditional values and and um, that that somehow it captures something very distinctively Japanese. Um, and it does kind of differentiate itself in some ways from um, other um other regions, uh, in terms of things like dialect, the dialect is quite difficult in, in that part of Japan. Uh, well, there are actually quite a few different dialects, but, um, I, I I'm sure you've run across this. Um, but you know, I, I've, well, probably the best example was, uh, a very long time ago, uh, in the, actually in the, in the nineties, um, my wife is from that part of Japan and, um, we had gone on a driving trip and, um, we went to the neighboring prefecture of um Al-Morti. I think we were in El and And um, we got lost. And so uh, my wife said, well, there's a guy over there. Let's stop and ask him. So she gets out of the car and I'm sitting in the car waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. And I said, this is taking a really long time. This can't be this complex. And she finally comes back to the car and I said, wow, that took a while. And she said, yeah, I really couldn't understand much of what he said. It took a lot of work to be able to figure out what he was saying. And that's because the dialect is so distinct um, from one part of of that region, that Tohoku region to another part of the region. And so um, I think that's actually an interesting feature because you're dealing with a very culturally diverse place that that's to me an important thing to keep in mind about it, that it's culturally um, complex and diverse. So those, I think those are just a few of the things that I think are important to think about um, in terms of understanding the region.
1: Yeah, uh, as somebody who also married into a local family, I, I do uh, recognize that experience. Um, so you, you do a little bit more uh, a sort of scene setting for us. And there's actually a really lovely passage in, uh, I guess, chapter one that I want to uh, read here and then have you comment on a little bit. Um, so the passage is, to ride the Shinkansen north from Tokyo into Tohoku is to be confronted not with a transition from urban-slash-industrial to rural-slash-agricultural Japan, but to glide through a pastiche of urban and rural spatialities intertwined in a lattice work of variously populated areas linked through limited-access highways, rail lines, and communications networks that are set amidst checkerboard rice fields, red and yellow McDonald's restaurants, 7-Eleven convenience stores, high-rise hotels, and shopping malls with large parking lots that accommodate the automobile-centered lifestyle of the Japanese countryside. So this, uh, I think, you know, speaks to some of that uh, diversity as well as the complexity of, of of thinking about, you know, what what's really what sort of constitutes uh, rural Japan, right? And so you propose uh, the term cosmopolitan rurality to characterize some of the salient ways in which Tohoku is interconnected with Japan and with the the larger world. Um, So can you tell us about that term and and, um, how it is expressed specifically in the entrepreneurialism that you're writing about? And you also use the term Mm -hmm. neo-rurality. So how does that sort of, uh, how does that term, and I guess cosmopolitan rurality as well, converge or diverge from the opinions expressed by some of your uh, informants in your ethnographies um, and what is sort of significant about that?
2: Sure, uh, the, the term cosmopolitan rea- rurality, which is hard to say, um, was um, it, it it came to my to mind as I was thinking about trying to get away from these these sort of um, binaries, these dichotomies between the rural and the urban, the agricultural and the industrial, because the region doesn't reflect that. Um, you know, so if, if I, I mean, I call it rural Japan and that's partly because Japanese call it rural Japan. Um, but when I say that word rural, um, the images that come up are, are not really a very good representation of the place. And, you know, as I mentioned, um, you know, there's a Toyota factory, but there are lots and lots of other things going on there that, you know, capture um, the cosmopolitan. The 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 sense of connectedness to areas beyond that region, and the sense that um, there's an interaction going on between people there. And, and you know, uh, back to the the jazz idea. Um, in in a town, just a, a few towns south of Kanagasaki is, is Ichinoseki, and there is a really good jazz club there called Basies, and um, some very prominent jazz musicians have gone through that club. Um, that's not something you'd really expect in that part of Japan. You know, jazz is an international music. you kind of think of it as a as sort of a cosmopolitan um, artistic you know frame and and yet there it is. Um, and so I wanted to try to you know capture a sense that not only is the place not a place that's not cosmopolitan, it is cosmopolitan, but the people also. Are they are people who have um, ties to global flows of things, of ideas, of, of values, of goods, um, and, and they're intertwined in the global economy and also the, the global uh, flow of ideas. And so, um, so for me, that was what I was trying to convey with that sense of, of this kind of hybridity between the cosmopolitan and the rural. And, and you know, the other side of it is that when you talk to people there, um, they often represent the place as um, conveying. It's it's a rural place. That's how they will, they'll use the word inaka uh, to talk about it, which is a word one word for rural in, in Japan. And um, and they do differentiate it from um, urban areas. I actually had a conversation a couple of weeks ago via Zoom um, with some of the people that I know. It was a, a kind of a focus group type thing that that we did, um, and. Um, we asked a question, because uh, you're probably familiar, that, that Iwate didn't have a um, confirmed positive case of COVID-19 until, uh, I think, late July or early August. Uh, and they've only had a few, uh, maybe, I don't know, five or 10 or something like that. And so um, I was working with someone, and she was doing a, a research project looking at, at perceptions about this. And um, we asked a question, you know, well, why do you think this is the case? And, and several people had an answer that I thought was kind of surprising. Um, they said, well, uh, it's very clean here. The air is very clean. Uh, it's not like urban spaces with, with, you know, air that has pollutants. And so um, there's a, a sense of, of sort of purity and cleanness to the place. And then in, they also kind of conveyed um the the people there are are very um concerned with others and therefore um they're very concerned with doing the right thing to make sure that that the um covid doesn't spread and and so you know i think this captures the sense that on one hand there's a way that they distinguish themselves from urban cosmopolitan spaces but on the other hand they are very much a cosmopolitan space that's also tied in with what is at least perceived as more, you know, rural type of values, and so um, that's that's what I was getting at with that idea. And then the idea of neo-local is a, is a another way to try to capture this is to, or excuse me, not neo-local. Um, that's an anthropology term. Neo-rurality uh, or neo-rural is is a way to capture this. Um, this is not my term. This has been used in other places and by other scholars, but. Um, I wanted to capture a sense that this is a a place that um, retains, you know, um, unbuilt areas. It retains, you know, widespreads of greenery and and trees, and yet at the same time also has areas of urban urban form and and industrial form. Um, It certainly, in terms of the perception that people have, retains what they think of as traditional values. But at the same time, um, there are people who have again traveled all over the world um, that have very cosmopolitan outlook on life, um, and so it, it's. On the one hand, it's rural, and on the one hand, it's not, and it's kind of a new type of of rurality, um, one that's very much tied in with global flows and very much tied in with this this broader you know global um, set of structures that we see in the world today. And so that, that those those are the ideas I was trying to convey. Using these terminologies,
1: yeah, that's uh, that's really helpful for me personally. I guess um, you know, just to to use another jazz example, uh, in uh, Aomori, the, the town of Sannohe has a uh, I think the, I think they still refer to themselves as the the town of Jazz and Soba, and they have a Jazz and Soba <laughs> festival in the in the summers. Uh, which you you may very well be familiar with, but I had always sort of thought of that as a kind of pastiche, right, rather than a, a sort of cosmopolitan sensibility. Um, and so this was quite eye opening for for me uh, personally, and I appreciated that about the uh, about the way that you're framing this.
2: Um, well, I think that it's I think one has to think about it also in terms of identity of of the individuals that live there, and you know, a pastiche would suggest that we're kind of gluing these things together, but if you look at at The people that I talked with, the entrepreneurs that I talked with, they are consciously blending things from that cosmopolitan world with that more sort of of traditional or or rustic world. And they're doing it consciously. And they themselves are people who are, their identities have a kind of hybrid quality. They, on one hand, tie in very well with that sort of rustic lifestyle On the other hand, they tie in very well with the cosmopolitan lifestyle. And, you know, many of them, again, have have traveled all over the place.
1: Yeah, and um, and that's... uh something that I think comes out uh, starting really in uh, chapters three and four when we get into the uh, entrepreneurs themselves. But There's one last bit of context that I wanted to get here for uh, our listeners. Um, and that is, you've already alluded to the importance of uh, demographic change and specifically depopulation mm-hmm. um, in the sort of inspiration for the book, The Impetus, for uh, doing this research. Um, and you point out in the opening of chapter two that it's quite important for understanding the entrepreneurial climate, the entrepreneurial ecosystem in the Kanagasaki area. Um, so can you tell us about the effects of depopulation and the aging population, um, and also what efforts are being made and by whom to stem the tide of any negative effects? Um, and also a, a really important thread that sort of straddles the, the three major themes of cosmopolitan morality, population change, and entrepreneurship is the movement of people across these internal borders uh, in Japan between rural and urban areas. Um, and the importance then, uh, you know, and you've talked about that, of course, but then the importance of the personal networks and the social capital that, that accrues um, to those entrepreneurs. So if you could talk about that a little bit, that would be helpful too.
2: Yeah, um, I think um, when we look at, at the, the social problems that Japan is facing right now, um, its population is, is really, you know, one of the, the most significant things that they're trying to figure out how to deal with. And 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 so the, the sort of the quick number that, um, you know, usually cap- captures people's attention is that um, right now the, the population of Japan is declining. Um, just the other day, there was a news report that came out that said that, you know, I think just under 29% of the population is over the age of 65. That's actually quite a bit higher in areas like Kanegasaki, where um, I would probably say as of right now, it's it's up around 35%, maybe not quite that high, but close. Um, and it's certainly going to go over 40%. And you know, so what that means is that, that we're at a point in time right now where one in every three people you run across is going to be over 65. Um, what that means also is that um, the population is going to continue to d- decline, and in fact, the government projections are that the current population of about 125 million might drop as low as 45 million by the end of this century. Um, that's an astonishing transition, uh, and so there are you know huge questions about how do you maintain businesses, how do you maintain industry, um, and and the Japanese government. Um, and you know, scholars, a variety of people are trying to figure out how they're going to deal with that. And so, um, in areas like um, Kanegasaki, this is they're ahead of the curve on this. Um, and when you characterize um, some of the you know towns um, in these areas, you, you you really are struck when you know you walk through a particularly if you kind of get away from the so Kanegasaki is on the main lines; it's on the, the main. Um, limited access highway that goes through the region. The railroad goes through the town and it's not far from the um, Shinkansen line. But if you move away from there and you go up into the mountains, you're going to find towns um, in some cases where there's nobody under the age of 50. Um, And there's an emerging problem of of ghost towns um, and empty houses. There are empty houses everywhere. Uh, It's quite striking. Uh, And the government, I think, estimates that right now there's somewhere in the vicinity of 8 million empty houses in Japan. And so this is going to intensify as the population declines. And what has also happened is that the the population pyramid of Japan, population pyramid should look like a a pyramid, it should be triangular with a small part on top, um, is actually inverted now. And so there are fewer younger people than there are older people. And that presents very significant problems in terms of managing the costs associated with healthcare. Um, and so all these things are kind of coming together. And, and in order to really understand this area, um, there needs to be a, a you, you need to have a sense of that kind of democratic demographic, uh, context, uh, because that's shaping what people are doing. And, and, you know, it's a sort of the, the short answer when it comes to entrepreneurialism is, um, and this was actually, you know, again, part of my question is why would you start a business when you know you've only got maybe 15 years left of enough people to allow you to keep your business running? And that's what people told me is they thought maybe they had 15 or 20 years. Um, and that's because the population is, is declining so rapidly. And so, um, I I think that's a, you know, an absolutely key point to understanding the context and understanding what's happening there. You raised the question about movement and, um, the, there's a fairly long tradition of, of people, uh, moving, of course, across, uh, prefectural borders in Japan, uh, for work. There's, you know, temporary work that people, you know, go, uh, to do from one part of Japan to another, and then they go back home. Uh, one of the things that, that's been going on for quite some time are, um, both, uh, U-turn patterns and L-turn patterns of migration. And the U-turn pattern is, um, so, you know, let's say in the 1980s, um, Lots of people, well, people always do, but lots of people were moving into Tokyo. Um, Tokyo is kind of like this this um drain that just sucks population from everywhere else. And um people go there uh for education and they stay to work, and so um then they reach the point of retirement, and retirement in Japan is mandatory, um, usually around 60. Uh, but people retire between 50 and 65, typically, and then they'll do something else for a while. Um, but they retire. And and of course, at 60, there's a good chance that you've got parents in their 80s or 90s and they're in need of care. And so um, the U-turn is, is people will have moved into Tokyo or some other big city and then they move back out to the countryside to take care of their family or simply to take over the um, family. Uh, property maybe there's a farm and they may not necessarily want a farm, but they go and they live in their natal household. Um, the L-turn pattern uh, is is a little different where people have, um, you know, maybe gone. Um, they've moved into the city from the suburbs and then they move further out. Or so there's a kind of a different little little bit of a different pattern there. Um, and sometimes they move further out in order to. Um, pursue something interesting like farming they might get really interested in organic farming and so they decide that they want to go and move out of um the city uh maybe having grown up in the in the suburbs um uh, and they they choose to go and i don't know start a organic strawberry farm or something like that so there there are different patterns of migration um that you know there's a fair amount of moving moving going back and forth um and one of the things that happens often as people get older, they're moving back out to the countryside. That's that's not an unusual pattern. So uh, that also contributes to what's going on in terms of the um, so the people that I talk to, um, most of them are people that had moved in usually to Tokyo, worked there for several years, decided they didn't like it, and then went out to start a business, and so that that pattern has been. Um, Pretty common with the small business owners that I've run across.
1: Great. So I want to jump into the uh, ethnographies now that we have all this sort of rich context to uh, understand them in. Uh, before we do so, I, I, I need to uh, quickly apologize and give our uh, listeners the ch- uh, chapter titles for chapters one and two. That was uh, chapter one is the narrow expressway to Oakland, chapter two is business depopulation and return migration. Uh, and you can Probably guess that those how we got to the themes we've been talking about, um, but chapter three uh, really builds on that. It's called a challenging business climate, and it unfolds around the story of a local entrepreneur you've called Akiko. Um, mm-hmm. So tell us about Akiko. Who is she? Uh, what can we learn from her story um, about Kanegasaki, about Tohoku, and about entrepreneurialism? Um, and I just wanted to say that, like, I was pers- I was really struck by uh, your observation that her business practices reflect. Uh, a tendency in Japan to view entrepreneurship as something other than a sort of unmitigated positive and to, uh, quote, favor an atmosphere of sustainability over growth. And I thought that was particularly interesting, um, both as a cultural uh, observation and also in the context of uh, depopulation and the sort of uh, uh, fear that it won't be sustainable that we've just been talking about. Um, it also, there's this, you know, sort of problem of, you know, Japan has been known for uh, its sort of extraordinary modern economic growth and business success. Um, And the sort of idea that uh, it was obsessed with growthism, you know, in in the post-war was such a knock on Japan, um, this sort of obsessive prioritization of economic growth. Um, it, It was, you know, sort of, I have to admit, I sort of was, was rather uh, struck and nonplussed by this idea that entrepreneurship was seen as something other than a positive. Mm -hmm. So I'd love it if you could unpack that for us here.
2: Um, yeah, I, so I guess first, um, I'll describe Akiko a little bit. And, um, so she grew up in, in, um, actually in the town next to Kanegasaki. Uh, My work kind of straddles two different er two different towns, but, um, And, um, she went into Tokyo, like, you know, many people do and got an education and, um, she met someone, got married and, um, there, there were a lot of problems in the marriage and, and, um, ultimately decided to divorce. And so she moved back home and, uh, you know, felt, what do I do now? And so she was struggling with what to do and, 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 uh, kind of the, part of the problem for her was that she didn't really want to live in in rural Japan, and so um, she ultimately went back to Tokyo and um, eventually met someone else and and then still didn't really know what she wanted to do. And then an opportunity came up, and the opportunity was that there was a uh, revitalization effort going on along uh, one of the main streets in the center of the city that's uh, right near where she's from, and uh, her father was on the um, the uh, committee that was kind of generating this. And, and so um, he asked her, well, you know, is there anything that you would be interested in doing? Um, and the, the basic, the, the, the system was, you know, set up so that um, people could get um, loans that would not, you know, be difficult to deal with and that they would um, get various kinds of support to help them in the process of starting a business because they really wanted to revitalize this area of of the town. And um, so she thought about it and she decided, well, it would be kind of interesting. I have some connections with, uh, through the work that she was doing in Tokyo, she had some connections with sort of um, suppliers of international goods. And she thought, well, maybe I could make an interesting shop. So that's what she did. She created a, a kind of a very eclectic shop that has, you know, all sorts of different things. I've seen um, Gumby action figures there. I've seen, um, um, you know, um, uh, shortbread, things like that. I, I've seen, uh, you know, a lot of clothes. She has a lot of clothes. Um, and it's, you know, the kind of stuff you would typically see in, in, a, in a shop um, somewhere in Tokyo. It's, it's very, um, you know, kind of hip and, and um, you know, um, tied in with, you know, current fashions. And what her goal was really was to create a store that would uh, appeal to um, high school aged and uh, um, women and younger women, maybe in their 20s. And it was very effective. Um, there, when, when she was operating in the late 90s, there were always people there. Um, and usually they were that particular demographic. Uh, in fact, I honestly can't really remember ever seeing a man other than myself in the store. Um, and, um, so I actually, um, yeah, I didn't see her for a while. I, you know, would drop by once in a while when I was back. And then I was, um, out with my daughter, Sarah, and, uh, we were at a, uh, this shopping mall in the city of Kitakami, which is North of Kanegasaki and, uh, Misesawa or Oshu where, where the store is, 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 a little bit South. And I walked into the store because um, we were shopping for clothes for my daughter. And um, I looked at the sign in the back of the store and I said, wow, that's the, that's the same sign um, as, as the store in, uh, that, that my friend has. And, and I thought, that's interesting. And then I saw her standing there. And so I was quite surprised. Um, and so we chatted for a little bit. And what I learned was that the store in, in um, Mizusawa was struggling uh, because of the, the lack of younger people in the area. And so she decided that if she was going to continue, um, she needed to open up a store in a, in a shopping mall environment. And also, the store is really different in the shopping mall. It looks like it's catering primarily more to um, middle-aged women um, who want to buy fashionable clothes and accessories. So the, the whole sort of tone of the store is a very different kind of store. It's not particularly eclectic. Um, it, it just has some nice things and of different types. So, you know, we talked about why she had um, chosen to start a business, and and you know, she said, "Well, that you know, had never really been on her mind initially when um, she was younger." And I've heard this from you know many people. But when you know, one of the questions I often would ask is, I, I started thinking about you know the back to the definition of the entrepreneur, and in 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 the United States, and actually in the West in general, the entrepreneur. Uh, pr- has typically been defined as someone who, um, takes risks, um, for the purpose of gaining profits. And so it's, it's designed, you know, it's a way to generate wealth. And, and, um, I wondered about that. And, and so I asked people about that and, and they typically said, no, that really wasn't what they were aiming at. What they were aiming at was a sustainable lifestyle. Um, so sustainability, the way I'm using it here is, is not really in the sense necessarily of, of environmental sustainability, although that certainly is on the mind of people, on minds of people. But what they want to do is rather than worrying about growing a business, um, they were interested in building something that was sustainable, that they enjoyed and they they found fulfilling. Um, but generating wealth is not something that was particularly important to any of the people that I spoke with. Um, and in fact, um, a few of them um, actually, you know, I would I would say, you know, something like, well, you know, sort of like in Akiko's case, um, uh, other stores, you know, wow, you, you've been really successful with this shop. You know, have you thought about um, starting another one or maybe, you know, having a chain? You're like, no, I don't, I don't want to do that. Um, you know, one person said, if I did that, then I'd be busy operating the chain instead of meeting with the customers and, and meeting with the customers is what I find fulfilling so this is what I want to do. I, I don't want to grow. And I'm not concerned about becoming wealthy as a result of building a business, even if it could, could go that way, if it might be successful. Um, so, you know, this is the, the, there's a sense here that that people are, are really unconcerned with the issue of growth. Um, and it kind of gets on in, into this, this other question. And, and, I actually found your question quite interesting with this because, of course, yes, Japan is a society that has historically been very focused on, you know, grow, grow, grow. That was the 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 sort of mindset after the war. It also really tired a lot of people out. Um, and I think, you know, in the 1990s when the economy really kind of went pretty bad and it's, you know, never recovered to the, the level it was at, say, in the 80s, leading up to the 80s. Um, people started really questioning uh, what they were doing, um, and questioning whether or not this kind of focus on on you know growing and, and living in a high paced environment was uh, really a good lifestyle. And one of the things I ran across in talking to several people was that um, a significant um, impetus in all of this was the disaster of Three Eleven. Um, after that happened, uh, quite a few people. Uh, started kind of rethinking their, um, their lives and rethinking their, their value structures and saying, you know, I'm, I'm rushing around making money, making money, but why am I doing this? What's the, what's the point of doing this? Uh, Maybe I don't want to live in that high paced lifestyle. Maybe I want to do something else. Um, And instead I want to do something that is personally satisfying that, and also involves um, good close interactions with other people. And so I think this kind of raised questions in people's minds about the value of of this kind of constant focus on growth.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
1: Yeah, uh, that's that's very clarifying. And I think it it really speaks to um, a key word that you uh, come back to a number of times, which is the the Japanese word iki or this this idea of fulfillment that you're talking about, right? Um, and and it, it, it was interesting to me, I guess, you know, I'd heard this, sort of generational critique um, of, you know, young people these days, they don't want to get out there and, you know, uh, work hard and grow their, you know, work hard and grow our businesses or their businesses or whatever. So it was sort of interesting to see people who were not part of that generation, um, Akko being the first of several that you profile, mm-hmm. um, sort of having that uh, a similar um, attitude about entrepreneurship and about the sort of, you know, the growthist uh, mentality Um, there's a there's a I guess a a bit of a a contrast but there are also some really interesting overlaps with the star of the next chapter um, and that's chapter four the reluctant entrepreneur Um, so Yoshida Keiko and her husband uh, are healthcare entrepreneurs in the area there and they um, they're in this family business, um, and so I'd like you to sort of describe the family business, of course, but um, also like, how, how does, uh, how does uh, Keiko's life um, and how does her sort of uh, entrepreneurial world compare with Akiko's, um, especially around these questions that we've been talking about of you know, growth versus fulfillment, uh, sustainability, um, you know, the interaction with customers and service to the community?
2: Yeah, she, um, so she had, um, moved also out of that area and into, um, I think she was living in Chiba. So just outside of Tokyo, um, for education, um, and her family's family, uh, is a a family that owned, owns a pharmacy. And, um, but she, she was working in a, um, a pharmaceutical company, I think, and, um, was a big company and her husband also was working in a big company and, um, her parents had not really ever put any sort of pressure or, or, you know, they never indicated that that she needed to come home and take over the family business. Um, so she, didn't, and she didn't want to, um, she was quite happy as she put it working as a, a salary man. That's kind of the generic term for a white collar worker in Japan. And, um, and she liked it because um, she had time. Uh, she could take at least minimal vacations and travel. Uh, she loves to travel. Um, she had time for kids and and you know could balance the the work world pretty well with with um, her family life. Her husband, however, um, was not very happy. And um, one of the things that happened was that uh, he got told that that he was going to have to. Um, He was going to be transferred to, I think, somewhere else in, in maybe somewhere else in Asia, uh, for, you know, several years. And so he was going to have to live apart from his family and he didn't want to do that. He's uh, very, very committed to his kids and raising his kids. And so they thought about it and they decided, well, you know, I guess we, you know, we have the the expertise to do this. So, um, they thought they would move back and, and take over the pharmacy, which they did. And, um, so they were, they were running the pharmacy in the 1990s. And then um, something happened in Japan. And, and this is, I think, very important to understanding the idea of the entrepreneurial ecosystem. Um, the uh, government, so, so this, this depopulation problem is, is you know, you, one of the things that is associated with it is you've got a, an exploding population of older people and they need care. Um, And so in the late 1990s, they they were looking at the programs that they had in place, like what was called the Gold Plan uh, for taking care of the health care needs of of older people. And they concluded, quite rightly, that they they were not in a good spot. So they developed uh, a long-term care insurance program that came out in 2000, which everybody is required to pay into, I think, starting around the age of 40. Um, and it covers all of the different kinds of um, care needs one might have, like, you know, in-home nursing services or nursing home services and this kind of thing. But they did something quite important with this. They shifted from a, um, an orientation that was specific, primarily publicly oriented um, services. So you went to, you know, a, a daycare center that was run by the local government um, to allowing private um, businesses to be developed that would provide the same kinds of services that was being provided by the government. Well, this caused a um, kind of an explosion of um, different kinds of new businesses. So for example, one type of new business that emerged was um, group homes for um, people, older people that are suffering, suffering with some kind of a particular ailment like Alzheimer's disease. And they went nationally, that like group homes for Alzheimer's patients went for, from virtually non-existent in 2000 to about 8,000 of them six years later. So the change in the policies and the change in the, in the um, overall structure of the way that they were uh, providing, um, um, you know, care for older people um, kind of created a, a context that encouraged entrepreneurial activity. Well, um, Keiko and her husband were kind of right in the middle of this. And so what they decided to do was to expand um, their services beyond the pharmacy and to start. They started a, a shop that um, sold various kinds of um, equipment for older people like walkers or, or you know scooters and things like this. And then they opened up a um, daycare center right in the center of the town, which is predominantly um, people who are older. There aren't too many young people there. So it would be very easy for them to um, get to the daycare center. Um, and that was uh, specifically uh, to support people with Alzheimer's disease. And so they developed, a, a, and they did some other things as well, but they developed a, a kind of a a, a fairly large um, company that um, you know I think employed when the last time I talked to her, they were employing well over fifty people, um, and they, um, you know, really expanded in response to the creation of this long-term care insurance program, which changed the way everything was was operating. And so, um, this was not something that Keiko had, uh, had really had in mind when um, you know she moved back, but it was a, a product of the change in the ecosystem, the change in the environment there. Um, and so I talked to her about this, you know, because you see this person who's growing a a, a large business and, you know, the thought is, okay, you're, you're kind of, you know, becoming a, a healthcare, um, you know, um, magnate in a sense. And, and, um, so I asked her, you know, well, why do you do this? And, and, you know, was, are you growing this in order to increase wealth? And, and she kind of laughed and said, no, I, that's not, um, not at all why I'm doing this is, um at first, that's the way she was thinking about things um, when she started, you know, came back to the business. Um, but then she realized that was not particularly fulfilling for her. Um, and that really what she was trying to do was to expand the services they have available to help people in the community. Um, and that that was really where, where her sort of entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial spirit was lying, was in, in what she could do to help other people around her and to help the community. Um, and, and, and she laughed and she said, you know, it's okay if I get rich, I'm not going to complain. Um, but that really wasn't for her the motivating factor. She really enjoys, um, the interactions with the customers who come in, they come in, um, their pharmacy actually does both Western biomedical medical type medicines and um, East Asian, um, herbal medicines. And so they do consulting with people when they come in and, you know, you have something wrong, um, like, I don't know, let's say you have acne or something like that. And um, they'll sit down and talk to you for quite a while about what's happening. And then they'll, they'll discuss, well, which would be the best way to, to, you know, approach this. And they'll make some sort of a recommendation of, well, this medicine here uh, from a ph- pharmaceutical company might be best for you or for somebody else. It might be um, this um, herbal medicine. And so that's the part that she really finds satisfying and, and, and really interacting with other um, healthcare businesses in the area to try to build something that supports um, the needs of the the area, particularly in terms of older people, is what's kind of lights her fire. That's the thing that, that gets her very excited. So, um, so it was you know it was not something she really wanted to do. She wanted to stay working in 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 this um, corporate world, but because of her husband's situation, they decided to move back, and and um, that has not been necessarily easy for her. Uh, because she's had to find ways to balance, um, you know, taking care of the kids and also doing what she needs to do in terms of the the business, and and so um, it's been you know complicated for her. Uh, the other thing is that you know she's one that that has said very clearly that when we think about growth, um, well, it's very temporary growth. You know, when she looks at the growth of her of of their company. Um, She was quite clear in saying that, you know, she figured that they had maybe 15 to 20 years uh, before there just would not be enough people to support the growth that they had, uh, the expansion that they had done, and so that they would unequivocally have to contract at that point in time.
1: Yeah, and uh, her story, uh, of course, um, again, you know, overlaps in interesting ways and contrasts in some other ways with... Uh, Mariko, who is the protagonist of chapter five, the gelato shop at the end of the universe. So you write, uh, Kanegasaki Creamery is the only restaurant or store for several kilometers in any direction. So I guess the obvious questions are, where is it? How did it get there? Um, and then uh, who is its proprietor, Mariko? Um, and how does, how does her life uh, story, her business story, um, her business philosophy, how do these things compare with those of Akiko and Keiko? Um,
2: and what do they tell us about the sort of entrepreneurial ecosystem? Sure. And and I'm hoping that somebody gets the reference in the title. Um, I I did. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Good, good. I'm glad that you did. Um, so this is like the most, um, unexpected, uh, gelato shop you will ever run across uh you you drive so the the center of kanegasaki is is kind of um i don't know if i'd exactly call it built up anymore there are a lot of empty storefronts but um but there's there's a a large grocery store and there's some uh, other things like that and so you drive out of the center of town you head west and i don't know maybe 12 kilometers uh west you take a Right turn, and there's like this little sign that points to this um, gelato shop, and you just find yourself driving on little narrow, what are called tambo roads, which are, are rice paddy roads that that uh, usually uh, can't really the you know, only only one car can fit on them. They're slightly wider than that, but not much. And you kind of wend your way through the the rice fields, and and then out of the middle of. You're just sitting out of nowhere, there is this building that looks like it's something from Europe. Um, it it's, looks like a kind of Tudor style of architecture. And it sits across the street from an enormous hay field. Um, and it's in front of a farm. And it's on the other side of it is a huge cornfield. And um, this was uh, uh, started by a, a woman who was a daughter in a, in a dairy family. Um, so they had a dairy farm. And, um, the father passed away and, um, but before he passed away, um, Mariko had gotten really tired of her life in Tokyo. She was, a, uh, uh, she worked in a department store, um, doing, um, uh, fitting, uh, you know, and selling men's clothes and in a, a pretty swanky department store and, um, so she'd gotten tired of that and decided to to move back. And, and she really didn't know what she was going to do, uh, but she was interested in, in making cheese. And so um, her father thought, well, this is cool. Uh, you know, one of my kids is actually interested in the dairy business. And so he set her up to um, do a couple of things. The first thing she did was she went to Holland where she studied cheese making. Um, and then, um, I think she may have studied gelato making somewhere in Europe too. Um, I can't remember now, but, um, and then she came back and she worked in a, um, a place that I think makes cheese not too far from there. And, and so he kind of set her up to get the education that she needed to, um, to learn how to make cheese. And, and she wasn't intending to make a business, but then after she did all this, she started thinking, oh, I got to do something. What should I do? And so she got the idea for creating this shop, um, and uh, she said she did get some resistance from uh, local business people who said, uh, yeah, "You're not really going to have too much luck starting a, a, a gelato and cheese shop, kind of way out there because there isn't too much out there, and uh, there is actually a little more out there than than what one might imagine." I'll come back to that in a minute, but um, but the general you know consensus was this isn't going to work too well. Well. It worked really well. Um, in the summers, she has long lines of people waiting to get gelato. Um, lots of people bring their kids and they bring their kids in part because they, not just because the gelato is fantastic, but um, also because it um, it's not a working farm, but they still keep um, goats. And so the kids can go and see the goats. And, um, and there's, you know, it's a lovely area, and the other thing they can do is they can stop there on the way to or on the way back from uh, the um, onsen or the hot springs that exist not too far away from there, um, and so it actually is is a little bit better positioned than one might imagine given given the way it looks, um, but it's still off the beaten path. It's it's not a not a place that one would uh, naturally think of as there being that kind of a shop, and so um, it's worked very well for her. Uh, and ultimately, um, she too, uh, you know, it's worked well enough that that people have talked about, well, maybe you should open another one, you know, like in, in one of the neighboring cities, um, sort of like, um, you know, like opening the, the clothing store in a shopping mall. And, and I think she probably could do that and probably would be very successful if she did that, but she doesn't want to do that. And the reason she doesn't want to do that is because she doesn't want to be moved, removed from that daily interaction with the customers. Which is what she finds satisfying. Um, she really doesn't need to make more money than she's making. She lives in her family's house, so there's no there are no costs associated with with the ownership of her um, you know family property other than you know taxes and and, and utilities, um, and so she doesn't have a real need to uh, do anything more than that, and she doesn't want to. Um, her she's satisfied with what um, she has, and she told me you know quite a few times that. Her goal was to reach us a, a spot where the business was sustainable, her life was sustainable, and she was happy. Um, I, I will say that one of the funny things about uh, her is that uh, when she first started describing why she moved back from Tokyo, she said, well, I wanted a slower life. I like the slow pace of life in the country. And and this is someone who gets up at six o'clock in the morning, maybe seven, um, but usually six o'clock in the morning works at the shop all day and then may in the summer uh be working till 11 o'clock at night and then be up again at two o'clock in the morning because she's got to make gelato and so it's anything but a slow-paced lifestyle it's a very fast-paced lifestyle um, but it's set in a context where people certainly perceive of things as moving at a slower pace
1: Yeah, and that um, that's an interesting sort of uh, contradiction. That it, it's part of this interest that I had between the uh, sort of emic and etic perceptions of of what the the rural really means. Mm-hmm. Um, so one last thing that I wanted to ask you about this uh, particular chapter. Um, so you characterize the uh, eclectic blend of international food, local customers, and rustic scenery um, at Kanegasaki Creamery as mm-hmm. a third space of cosmopolitan rurality. And I guess you're, you're referencing Baba's idea of the uh, third space. Um, and you talk about a, also um, globalized rusticity. Um, and I guess this is, this is uh, fitting into this sort of larger um, argument you're making about cosmopolitan morality, but what is it specifically about uh, Mariko's creamery uh, that um, sort of pl- plays into that? What is it, what is it specifically about that that, that makes it such a good uh, focal point for this
2: argument? Well, it, you know, part of it's just the way it looks. That's one of the things that's sort of striking. It, it doesn't look like a, a Japanese building, not even, you know, I'm not even saying you know, as I mean, you, you obviously, you know, you know Japan very well, and, and there are like old traditional Japanese buildings, but then even, you know, modern Japanese buildings have a particular kind of look to them. Um, and it doesn't look like those. It looks like something that really belongs in, in Europe. Um, and inside, it doesn't, you know, it, it it looks like this very cosmopolitan space. You walk into it and uh, the people working there are, are wearing, you know, white aprons and, and white sort of you know, hats, uh, bonnet type hats that are the type of thing you might see in a, in a shop in Tokyo. Uh, the flavors of the gelato are, are, are fascinating. And I, I, you know, it might be, you might understand this in some ways best by thinking about the flavors that she produces. So she produces flavors like, um, blueberry. That's really good. Uh, and it's made with fresh blueberries that are picked from the garden. That's right next to the gelato shop. Um, she, um, makes hazelnut. Uh, she makes sometimes cookies and cream. So these are, you know, kind of very, you know, widespread flavors that you would find all over the place. Um, but then she does some other things. She makes asparagus flavored gelato. Uh, that's not one that I would have expected. It's, it's actually pretty good. Um, and so what she's kind of doing is she's, she's blending. The, the sort of locality with the global. So, you know, you, you've got sitting in that, that set of, of six or eight trays of gelato that she has. Um, you've got something ranging from, you know, Oreo flavored. And of course, Oreos you can buy anywhere in Japan, just like in the U.S., but she's got that flavor. And then another flavor is asparagus. And another one is tomato sorbet because they grow a lot of tomatoes there. And, and so what she has done is she's created a kind of hybrid space that brings together things that are very much local, like the produce, the stuff that they make there with sort of themes and images and feelings, um, and, and sentiments that are very global and that are, that are sort of brought in from other places. And so, um, she has, you know, the decorations inside include things like, um, uh, I, uh, you know, the, the type of China that you get in Holland, for example, uh, that she brought back with her from there. Um, and various kinds of cheese related things from around the world, including uh, a couple of uh, Green Bay Packer cheese head hats. Um, and so, you know, she's got these things from sort of all over the place that reflect a an internationalized and cosmopolitan sense of the products that she makes. And yet at the same time, the products are um, very much drawing upon the local, well, for one thing, the local milk, that that was the whole idea actually at the beginning was to to use the, the products of the farm. And then when her father passed away, that, that became more difficult to do. But she still uses um, local dairy products produced by farms right nearby um, and local, you know, produce like asparagus and tomatoes and blending that in with this kind of internationalized product. And, and um, I think you can also see this very much in her own identity. She's an interesting mix of someone who is very much a product of that area, and yet very much someone who's lived in Tokyo and traveled the world. She's been to a lot of different parts of the world, including living in in Europe for a period of time. Yeah,
1: and and that uh, is a really nice bridge to uh, chapter six, uh, in which you talk about a uh, a pizza, well, a restaurant that that does uh, pizza as a sort of a specialty. Um, and so, I want to follow up on some of those. Uh, similar themes in the sort of uh, cosmopolitan and eclectic mix of local and global uh, in the pizza itself. But I think it's worth setting the scene for uh, where the restaurant is in Kanagasaki. It's a, quite a different area than mm. the ones we've been talking about. Um, so can you tell us about that Shiraito district um, and about its, its history and specifically the historical preservation product, uh, project, excuse me, that's been going on since the 1990s and how that has affected the area, um, its economy, its society, and sort of set the stage for this particular restaurant.
2: Yeah. So I, I, this is actually the, the, uh, Hamlet that I lived in, in the mid 1990s when I was doing the, uh, my field work for my doctoral dissertation and, um, uh, it's, it's, it's an interesting place. Uh, so it was at one time, um, uh, it's known as a Jokamachi, which means that there was a, a castle there. It sits right at what was the border of two of the different feudal domains um, in Edo period, Japan. And um, so the, 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 the community centered on the castle. And then uh, basically all of the, I guess, I don't know, the vassals of the, the lord of the castle, their families lived in these large houses that surrounded the area around the castle. And so this is a, for one thing, it's it's not an agricultural community. It's it's a, a fairly th- tightly packed, you know, feels like more like an urban neighborhood. Um, it's in the center of Kanegasaki. Um, and it's um, many of the, not all, but many of the families that are there are descendants of the, the samurai that, that lived there, um, you know, in, in, in the Edo period. And so um, they're, they're, they're very different from, um, even right next door, there's the, there's the merchant area, which, which abuts the the samurai area. And, and the merchants talk about the descendants of the samurai as being, um, kind of different and actually not always in positive ways. And so, um, so this, this neighborhood or this hamlet is, um, kind of structured around this, um, these old buildings. There there are quite a few of these old houses that are left, that that remain from um, 200 to 300 years ago. That's roughly how old these houses are. And several years ago, um, they got, well, in in the 90s, they got interested in um, historical preservation. Uh, They brought in some archaeologists from um, a university in, in Tohoku, uh, to, um, really look into the area and look into its history and, and, um, and they started really exploring what they might be able to do. And I, I think they may have been in part motivated by, um, another town in Tohoku known as Kakunodate, which is a very well-preserved, um, um, town that was, um, inhabited by samurai. And so they wanted to see if they could kind of, um, do some historical preservation, um, and, um, use that as a way to attract, um, tourists. That really was the goal. And over the course of the past, you know, 30 years or so, um, they have been, um, engaged in, um, they've done things like, for example, there used to be a, um, kindergarten in the center of that, um, neighborhood and the kindergarten, uh, kind of closed down as a result of the lack of, of children to go to it. And they reconstructed that into a museum. That's devoted to that um, the history of that neighborhood. There also was a really old house that had never been in any way modernized, sitting right in the center of the the village. And um, they they um, reformed it basically. They they renovated it and and um, brought it back to its original structure with a few things to sort of modernize a bit to make it you know easier to uh, be inside in the winter or the um, summer. And then they built. A visitor center that was designed in the fashion of the houses that that were there, um, and that that many, you know, a few of several of which remain. So there was a a kind of a a push for this revitalization and this creation of a historical district, Um, really for economic reasons primarily. It was to be able to see if they could draw in people, at least regionally. I don't think they had any expectations to be drawing on in people internationally, but they, they thought they might draw regional people and, and they've succeeded in that. Um, their busloads of people go through there, you know, fairly regularly and, um, you know, they get out and uh, local residents who know the area quite well, will tour them around and tell them about the different, um, interesting points about the village or the neighborhood. So, um, this, my samurai pizza chef, um, he um he was from he is from this this village uh and he had um he was interested in uh, um uh food service industry he was interested in in doing things with restaurants and he had moved up to Hokkaido after high school and um started working uh in restaurants and worked as a uh cook uh and eventually he was working for i think a fairly good sized restaurant change that went bankrupt and, um, he lost his job. He had married, um, and, and had, uh, had kids and he decided that, well, I can continue to try to work in, um, these, you know, typical restaurant type chains or something like that, or maybe this is an opportunity to go do something new. So he thought about, um, what would be interesting. And he came up with a very innovative idea. Um, he took the old house that is the old samurai house that, um, belonged to his family. And, and there's a a modern house next to it that was built that his parents live in. And he turned it into a restaurant. And, um, it's a very interesting restaurant because it's a pizza parlor of sorts. Um, that's the main thing that he serves is pizza. Uh, He serves really interesting, you know, some interesting varieties of pizza with, you know, sometimes toppings we might not think about in the United States necessarily. Um, But he also does something else interesting. Um, He serves traditional foods from that area. One of the things he serves is something called sweeton, which is a kind of a, um, it's kind of a a soup or a stew that, that... um, was eaten widely when there were shortages of food. And it, it, um, it, it, it's really tasty, um, but it also has this very strong nostalgic feeling for people. And he serves some other things there that are, are kind of, as a, a, a kind of a, a cake that's a, a steamed cake called ganzuki, and, and he serves that sometimes. And he has kind of a, a, a rotating menu of some different things um, that, that's eclectic. Um, with pizza is kind of the main thing, but then these other things come in and, um, and so you can go there and you can have pizza. And I think a lot of the local residents, they go there for pizza and you can, you can sit, you sit on the floor. It's, it's not, um, they don't have tables. There's one spot with a a table where you can, you know, have, um, it's like a kind of a high table you sit at like, um, you know, with stools but most of the restaurant is, is an, is the, you know, open space with tatami mat floors and you sit at low tables and, um, you order, you know, several different, their small pizzas and, um, or you can go there if you're one of the tourists and you can try a taste of the traditional food from that area. Um, and either of these is a possibility and he seems to have been quite successful with this. And so, um, This is, I think, a really good example of this kind of combining a whole set of different things that wouldn't naturally go together. I I don't think most of us think of Old Samurai House and Pizza Parlor and put those two together. But he put those two together and, um, you know, drew in this, again, very global kind of um, concept um, in terms of the food, blended it together with with local foods. And then put it in this context of historical preservation, to create a very interesting and innovative idea. And so um, that, that's really what was, you know, behind what he was doing and, and the nature of this particular um, restaurant. Yeah, and uh, the Samurai Pizza Chef, which I should say is the
1: t- title of the chapter, uh, chapter six, um, he is, uh, it's, to me, I think, he, you know, he exemplifies uh, some of the, the complex webs of interpersonal relations um, and social capital um, that, that, uh, you are also addressing with the other entrepreneurs, um, and maybe a little bit about his sort of personal history and the way, uh, the, the sort of, um, the, the way that his personal life has affected his, uh, business decisions and how, and, and why he made the decision to, uh, come back to Shiraito, to Kanegasaki, um, and what that has meant for him would be helpful for our listeners.
2: Yeah, he um so the decision was was one um that was I think difficult. Um his his wife was from Hokkaido. Um and you know, he felt that this was an opportunity to pursue a dream that he might not ever have again. So he he took his family and they they moved back there and they were living um with his parents. Um this did not apparently go too well for his wife. Um she was not happy with the situation and she Ultimately, left and took the kids back to Hokkaido. Um, I don't know the whole story, of course, because I've only ever been able to talk to him about this, and and all he really ever said about it was that um, it was extremely painful for him. Um, and you know, this I think gets into something that's very important. Um, when we talk about entrepreneurs, we often talk about risk, and we think about risk often in terms in terms of financial risk, but for um, this, this guy, the risk was really much different. There actually was very little financial risk because, um, the city as part of the, um, historical renovations that were going on in the, in his old house, they paid for all the renovations that were done to bring it up to, um, a standard that could be used as a restaurant. And the only thing that he really had to shell out money for was the equipment that he needed in the restaurant, like, you know, the stove and the refrigerator and that kind of stuff. Um, and his um, parents were able to uh, finance that. So he really took very little in the way of financial risk, but he took a huge risk in terms of you know, what we might think of his, his, his personal life, his, his, um, his ability to interact with his family. And, and his decision ultimately took a toll on his wife. She didn't like living there and she left. And so we were talking, we were sitting at one of the low tables one day talking about this during a, a slow period, and he started explaining to me, you know, what had happened, and then he broke down in tears. And I could see that, that this was, you know, just powerfully difficult for him because he really loves his, his family. And he was really troubled by the fact that he said he typically sees his children two or three times a year. And his dream is to expand his business, but it's not to expand his business to become again, uh, you know, have a, a, a large business. What he would like to do is to start a similar business in Hokkaido so that he could move back up there and that he could spend much more time with his family. And so that's the goal of expanding the business. It has very little to do with gaining wealth or, or, you know, building a, a large, um, you know, restaurant chain or something like that. It's really about that his decision um, basically derailed his family life. Um, I've thought a lot about that because I, I, you know, it's it's not a question I felt I could really ask him directly. But um, on the one hand, he made a decision very much about himself and pursued it. And it, it, it had very negative consequences. So the risk that he took was in, on the one hand, um, following his personal interests. On the other hand, um, not, you know, not fully perhaps grasping what the consequences of that might be um, for his his family life.
1: Yeah. And I thought he was a really uh, interesting example of the, uh, this idea of ikigai of, of fulfillment and the way that that plays out um, for entrepreneurs, uh, the entrepreneurs that you profile in Japan. Um Chapter seven uh, takes us in a very different direction. Uh, And and, and I thought this was a a really fascinating um, idea, even just to consider this as a matter of entrepreneurialism. Uh, So chapter seven is abandoned graves, empty temples, religious entrepreneurialism. Um, And it centers on some of the Buddhist temples in Southern Iwate. And just, uh, again, a little bit of uh, background for our our listeners would probably be quite helpful um, to understand the sort of role of Buddhism and Buddhist temples in the religious and secular life of contemporary Japan. Um, And in particular, as you show the, uh, the the ownership and management structure of temples is quite important to your story. So if you could flesh that out for us, that would be great.
2: Sure. Well, I think, you know, the first thing to keep in mind is that, that, um, you know, Buddhist monks or priests um, in Japan are kind of different from, you know, many other parts of the Buddhist world. Um, They marry and have kids. And the temples are typically, um, they're kind of like family businesses. And so they're passed down generationally, um, usually from eldest son to eldest son. But um, as you saw in the chapter, that's by no means all, always the case. And so, um, so that they 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 function very much like a business. And, and in fact, um, one of the people that I talked to um, in depth, I've known him for a very long time, um, he explained to me that he's an employee of the temple. That's actually how it, it works out. That um so he's paid a salary. Um and so, you know, on the one hand it's a family business, but he's actually uh very much like Keiko. Um, you know, her pharma- her pharmaceutical business and her other businesses are they're they're her family business, but they're incorporated. And and so um she's an employee of that business and he's an employee of the temple. And so I think in that sense, um these things are, you know, they're, they're, they're conceptualized in some ways, like a business is conceptualized. But what they do is really, really important for Japanese people. Um, what Buddhism is, well, what Buddhism is about in Japan is not about, I mean, it, in some levels, it's about, you know, things like Zen meditation and, and, and thinking deep thoughts. But for the most part, what it's about is making sure that the ancestors are taken care of. Um, it's a system for memorializing the dead, and it's extremely important that this be done. Um, it's something that matters to people. They, they, you know, it varies quite a bit how it's done from family to family, um, but it is something that really is is a necessary thing to do. And the temples are the locus of this, and the temples are the locus of in which uh, funerals are taken care of and post-death rituals are taken care of. So, um, it's a very, very important part of the, the social fabric of the community in Japan. Well, what happens when that community is disappearing because the population is shrinking. And what happens is the temples can't function because the temples function on the basis of the donations that the, the members of the, what's known as the Danka, the parish, um, what the donations that they make to support the temple. And so, um, in, in one case, um, the members of the, the temple parish, uh, the, the building, the main temple building was in terrible disrepair. And so they all agreed they needed to do something about that. And um, so they put together um, money from all of the different um, members of the parish and, and supported building a, a brand new building, um, which in some ways seems kind of strange uh, because you would think, well, again, you know, the population is declining. Um, but people need to have the temple. They need to have the place to take care of this, this part of their life. And the other thing that was going on with this particular temple was that um, the couple um, have no children, so they have no one to actually take over the temple. And so one of the things that they thought, and, and the members of the leadership in the, in the parish thought, uh, was that perhaps by constructing a new modern temple building, um, they might have more luck attracting someone Uh, who's young to ultimately take over the temple and and be the priest of the temple. And um, to date that has not happened. Um, But that was part of the thinking it was something needed to happen anyway, but it was also related to trying to ensure the survival of the temple in the long run. And, you know, when I've talked about um, this with my friend, who's the priest there and and his wife, um, they're they're both very close friends. I've known them a long time. Um, I asked him, you know, what's the future? And they said, well, you know, if we can't get this sorted out, what will probably have to happen is that our temple will have to merge with another temple in order to have a large enough parish to be able to maintain the things that we need to do. Um, so, it, again, is very much tied in with the demographic things that are going on in the region. Yeah. So in addition to uh,
1: this uh, couple that you just mentioned, you also introduced two very unusual figures, I think, uh, especially in terms of the, uh, even for someone who knows Japan, uh, you know, like myself, uh, sort of unusual figures for uh, Buddhist uh, clergy, uh, Fusako and Kenyu. Can you tell us about uh, these two um, and sort of how they are representative of this uh, religious entrepreneurialism in rural Japan that you're describing, uh, which you uh, call, uh, which I thought was really interesting, experimental or entrepreneurial Buddhism. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. Well, um, what, what's, <laughs> so you, you got this problem um, on top of the declining population. You've also got another problem is that young people really aren't that interested in Buddhism on, on the whole. There's fairly limited engagement by younger people. And, and if you're going to maintain the temples, you gotta figure out a way to get younger people involved. So Kenyu is, um, well, he's certainly one of the most intriguing individuals I've run across in Japan that, that's a, a Buddhist priest. Um, uh, he was the, the son of, of, of a temple a little bit north of Kanegasaki. And um, he went off to college, uh, the, the, the parish paid for his college to go to a Buddhist college to learn um, the things he needed to do to take over. And partway through college, he decided he didn't want to do it. So he quit and joined a boy band and started trying to make a a living as a musician, uh, which frankly, really, really pissed off the members of the parish because they had paid for his college and they were very disturbed by his uh, lack of responsibility. Um, So he did the boy band thing for a while and then started, according to him, started feeling guilty and decided to kind of rethink what he was doing. He went back, he finished, and um, then went back to take over the temple. There was a lot of suspicion about this, because uh, people were, you know, not really terribly comfortable with him. And then he decided that in order for the temple to succeed, he was going to have to do some new things. And so he started to innovate. Um, and so when when, you, when you're around temples in Japan, they, they aren't really like churches, say, in the United States, where there's a sort of strong sense of a variety of community things that people do and, and they they go and they have picnics and they have cookouts and they have concerts and all these kinds of things in the context of the church, which creates a sense of community. The, the sense of community around a temple in Japan is really around the fact that we're, we need to all take care of this place because this place takes care of, of the dead. That That's the sort of the focus of community for most temples. Well, he decided that wasn't going to work too well, so he started doing things more like what um, might be done in, a, in an American church or, or something, uh, where he started having um, barbecues, temple-oriented barbecues, trying to bring in families to get young people more um, attracted to the temple, and he also decided to make his personal presentation quite different. So the typical image of the, the Buddhist monk is, is a guy who's got his head shaved. He doesn't have his head shaved. He's got a flowing head of hair that's dyed chapatsu, which is kind of a reddish brown that you see in Japan um, quite often. And he even comments on, I remember he said to me, you know, so what do you think of this Buddhist priest with the chapatsu hair? And and I said, uh, it's, it's different. Um, And his goal, though, is to really try to find ways to um, connect with younger people by being a very different kind of Buddhist priest, one that seems to be more like them, rather than somebody who's in some ways quite different from sort of the average everyday person around him. So that's been his attempt to sort of engage in some some entrepreneurial activities, some creative activities to make the temple more um, central in the lives of the community and and. Partly, partly to simply save the temple in, in the face of the demographic issues that are going on. And so the other one, uh, Fusako, is, is um, well, th- this is perhaps one of the more interesting things, again, I, I've run across. Um, uh, first of all, uh, the fact that she's a she is kind of unusual in Japan uh, because usually Buddhist monks in, are men. Um, it's not impossible. There's nothing that really says uh, it can't be a woman, um, but that's not normally what we see. Um, she's a very interesting individual. She, uh, her, her brother actually was slated to take over the temple, and, and he didn't want to do it. And she was interested in it, and so she wound up becoming the head priest. And um, in the process of doing that, um, she... Um, also started doing some other things. You know, the, the, the fact of her, her personality, her, her identity being quite different from the typical Buddhist priest just made the place intriguing anyway. It's a really old temple, so people go there for, for uh, tourism reasons. And then when the head priest comes out and it's a woman, it's like, wow, that, that's kind of fascinating. Um, she also started doing things like giving um, talks and at local community centers in a variety of areas uh, 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 in a variety of places like this around the area and became, uh, you know, something of a a kind of a local celebrity. She's got a, a razor sharp sense of humor. Um, and, um, and so, you know, she's, she's quite entertaining. She's a really good speaker and she's entertaining to listen to. Um, and so she's engaged in, you know, trying to generate more interest in the temple and, and through basically her a kind of an outreach program that brings the fact that she's different. Um, and also that she's, um, an interesting personality and she actually has some really interesting things to say, bringing that out to the public. And she, you know, travels around quite a bit in that region, giving talks to do this. Um, more recently, um, her son is, is going to take over the uh, temple and, um, he started doing some other things like he started doing, um, uh, he started a YouTube channel uh, to talk about uh, Buddhism and talk about specific issues and in, in how Buddhism responds to um, these, you know, things like stress, for example, or, or, or being nervous about things. Um, and um, he's doing those in both Japanese and English because he uh, spent uh, quite a bit of time in England studying. And so he has very good English skills. And so he's creating a bilingual YouTube channel on Buddhism that also you know, kind of connects people with this temple. And, and so I think this is a way that he's looking for, um, again, new and innovative ways to, to not only maybe keep the temple alive, but also looking for new and innovative ways to express ideas from um, you know, Buddhist philosophy.
1: Yeah, I was I don't know whether this is a a fair comparison, but uh and, and I I hope you'll you'll comment on it. I was um thinking about the, the sort of similarities or parallels between Fusako and uh the the other famous uh woman who, who is a uh, well I guess probably not anymore, but uh, who who was a, a, a priest in uh in Iwate, and that's uh, Seto Chijakcho. The sort mm-hmm. of you know the 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 uh, she she for for listeners, you know, she started out as a, a quite a renowned author before she uh, took the tonsure, so to speak. Um, and she's very uh vivacious and mischievous and a fascinating speaker, and really was you know bringing people in to Buddhism and and specifically to the temple um through that sort of force of personality. Is that is that a fair comparison?
2: I think it is. Um, I I think there's a a real similarity there in that sense that, um, you know, her personality itself is intriguing and that attracts people to her because she has very interesting things to say. Um, and of course that, you know, at the very least that, that makes the temple something that people might go and visit, might check out because they want to know more about it. Uh, and that, that actually supports the temple because, um, quite a bit of the operating revenue that they get for the temple comes from, um, busloads of tourists that go to that temple and and they purchase, um, Omomori, which are, you know, talismans and things like this. Um, that, that's actually very important in supporting, uh, the temple because, you know, it's an old building or an old set of buildings. It, it often needs repair. And, and so, um, they need to find ways to have revenue and their, their Danka is quite small. It's like, I don't know, 15 or 20 households or something like that. So um, they don't have enough of a a parish to be able to actually support what, what the temple needs to do to continue operating. Yeah.
1: Um so in in your final chapter which is uh chapter 8 cosmopolitan morality and, and entrepreneurialism uh you gather together you know many of the threads that we've been talking about and that you've been and that you wrote about throughout the the course of the book and these different narratives. Um b- before I sort of ask you a little bit about that I want to I it, I'd be remiss if I didn't uh ask about the fact that so many of these entrepreneurs are women. Um, and you alluded to that in, in the uh, opening of the conversation. Um, is there something to this? Is this, you know, uh, I mean, it's not statistically significant in that sense, you know, as our friends in the social sciences might say, um, but is is this part of a, a larger trend that you see? And if so, what is, what does
2: it mean? Um, I do think uh, I certainly, you know, again, I, I don't want to, you know, make broad generalizations, um, you know, because it isn't you know, ethnographic research is not really designed to make generalizations, but, um, but what I will say is that I certain. I mean, I've, I've run into men, you know, I, I've, I've, um, I know quite a few men who have started small businesses and, and have been very entrepreneurial, but uh, it seems like an awful lot of the people I've run into have been women. And, um, I think in my conversations, one of the things that is often come up is, is, um, what, um, Monico said to me at one point was that, you know, part of what motivated her ultimate desire to have a business was the the glass ceiling problem. She just couldn't get anywhere. Um, And she felt that if she was going to do what she wanted that was um, truly satisfying, um, she was going to have to have her own business to be able to do it. That's where she eventually arrived. And again, you know, she didn't really start learning, um, the, the, the cheese and and gelato business with the idea of starting a business, but it it was certainly, you know, lurking in her mind when I think she returned to Kanegasaki that, that her, the rest of her life was going to be kind of the same in Tokyo, that there was really nowhere for her to grow as a person. Uh, not again, from a financial perspective, but as a person staying in that environment. And so uh, ultimately, moving back and then ultimately starting a business was a way for her to have control over her life and and the development of her life in a way that she really wanted to. And so, I I, I think that her um, her comments and her experience are certainly not unusual. I, I think that that is the case. I, I will say that um, you know my initial study was intended to look at at, at women who were starting small businesses. And of course, very quickly, I realized that, um, well, um, I guess as I got into doing the field work um, and and really uh, pursuing it, um, I kind of realized that that was sort of dumb uh, because I couldn't really understand what was going on with women if I didn't also talk to and understand what was going on with men. Because one of the things, you know, as I said, my initial thought was I wondered, well, you know, what kinds of things might get in the way of, of a woman starting a business out in these rural areas? And then when I started talking to some men, I realized, well, there are a bunch of things getting in their way too. Um, and, and, you know, of course, the, the example of my samurai pizza chef, um, you know, basically having his family kind of implode on him is an example of this that, that he had a bunch of different pressures related to his business. I think, although he didn't say this directly, he didn't maybe want to. I do think it was part of as he felt a certain obligation to his parents as the eldest son. Um, and, you know, these things came together and, and, and created, again, a kind of pressure for him. On the other hand, he is able to manage his life, um, at least in terms of his business life, in the way that he wants to, because he's doing what he actually wants to do. So I, I think that that was, for uh, many of the women I've talked to, really kind of central in, in their decision to start a business.
1: Yeah, it's fascinating. Um, so before we uh, sort of r- wrap up here, I just I want to ask you uh, if if there's anything that you would like to sort of uh, re-emphasize or anything that we haven't covered that uh, that you would like uh, our listeners and future readers of your book to take away uh, from the research.
2: Well, I think more than anything is is the um, you know to to understand that. Uh, when we talk about a place, uh, whether it's rural or whether it's urban or whatever, you know, people tend to think of urban places as these places that are rapidly changing and all sorts of things are going on. Well, that's true in rural places too. Uh, There's lots of innovation. There's there's lots of new ideas emerging. People are are trying to find interesting ways to construct their lives and to live their lives. And so um, you know, these are very dynamic places and very complicated places. And I think um, the other thing to keep in mind is that when we when we talk about rural in the modern world, we can't really, you know, well, there's some places where we can talk about it this way. But, uh, you know, in an in, in increasing sense, we can't really talk about these places as being isolated. Um, they're not isolated. There is no such thing as a truly isolated rural Japan. Um, because they are intertwined with all of the communications and transportation networks, and and they're part of these global flows of things. And so, um, I, I think one of the things that, that our world is is leading to is, is a need to really reconceptualize what what we mean when we talk about urban and rural, or we talk about center and periphery. Um, because I don't think in Japan, in Italy, and at least, and I think this is true in many other places, um, those are very. I don't think they're very meaningful. Um, Dichotomies. I don't think that's a, a binary or type of binary that really describes what's happening in these places. So I mean, it was really a big thing I was trying to get at in the book.
1: Yeah. So, um, you've been very generous with your time and I know I, I should let you go soon, but, uh, I did want to ask you our sort of traditional last question here, which is what are you working on now?
2: Yeah, well, um, <laughs> I actually have just kind of started, uh, I have a, project that's been in the back of my mind and I've dealt with for a while, and um, I'm interested in exploring the concept of, of organizational cultures. Um, I, a few years ago, I, I published a couple of pieces in the Harvard Business Review that argue that um, uh, something which I, I think that, that organizational and, and business cultures don't really exist. Uh, and part of that's because organizations are, are embedded in larger cultural structures. Um, And that actually generated a fair amount of interest and also um, some pretty strong rebuttals in um, some other online business related um, uh, sites like Forbes. And so uh, I'm I'm right now in the process of thinking about how to really develop that idea into a book.
1: That sounds like uh, quite a hornet's nest. (laughs) I I wish you luck on that.
2: It is. I, I'm probably going to really step in it, but it's okay. It, it, I guess at my point in life, I don't worry too much about it anymore.
1: Well, yeah, I guess, you know, stepping in it is uh, is part of that uh, ikigai of, of fulfillment that we've been talking about. So um, I, yeah, I'd, I'd love to hear more about that project as it develops and uh, when it turns into a book, I, I hope you'll uh, consider coming back on the podcast.
2: That would be great. And, and I, I really appreciate your taking the time to chat with me about my work and, and I hope, the folks out there listening will, you know, find it interesting.
1: Great. Well, thank you very much and uh, uh, take care.
2: Thank you. Take care.